So some people will say, don't dwell on the past. The past is the past. It's over and done with. Come on, let's just move on and forget the past. I don't think that works. Um, on the other side, people will say, don't worry about the future. The future's not here yet. Tomorrow will take care of itself. We'll cross the bridge when we come to it. Too much of that is, is not so helpful either. And you know, just focus on the moment. All we have is the moment. Just focus on the moment. I think that's a little, a little missing the point. All three are important. The past is the past, but for one thing, our feelings about the past are not the past. Our feelings about the past are present. So it's accepting that it is that the past is part of the present, and that it even may have some impact into the future. We don't have to be afraid of that. We don't have to deny that or prevent that. But it's learning how to roll with all this, learning how to cope with it. So I think the goal is to try to appreciate the journey, appreciate the moment, appreciate what we have, appreciate the hard work that we're doing to, to be able to enjoy it as we're going through it and not be looking for the, the greener grass on the other side of some definition of success. If you're interested in starting your own podcast, join me in Podcast Your Passion. I'll take you through my eight-week course where I'll mentor you to build a world-class podcast. I'm only taking on a small group of people who want to share their passion through broadcasting where I'll have you up on iTunes and YouTube within weeks so you can podcast your passion. Click on the link below for more information. This week on American Real, we bring you psychologist Dr. Art Friends, who received his PhD from Syracuse University. Our conversation focused on what it means to live well, and we also talked about mindfulness, his newspaper column that he writes on a monthly basis, and how our diet can actually affect our lives. So sit back, relax, as I welcome Dr. Art Friends. American Real. I am Roger Brooks. My guest today is psychologist Dr. Art Friends. Having an early interest in psychology, you entered Brooklyn College, 
with a major in psychology and where your interest in psychotherapy deepened. You pursued a doctorate in clinical psychology and graduated from Brooklyn College before earning your PhD in clinical psychology from Syracuse University. Between 1990 and 1992, you worked as a staff psychologist at the Tioga County Mental Health Clinic in Owego, New York, and uh, then entered a group private practice before eventually having your own. Uh, Dr. Friends, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. And I've been, um, I've been doing a lot of catch up. I've seen your, your, your photo and some of your articles over the years, mm -hmm. uh, but it, you know how it is when, until you really tune in on someone, mm -hmm. you know, it's there, but I never really understood all the work that you're doing uh, here locally. But with these articles, I think it reaches people far and wide, which is great. So I can't wait to talk about that in um, your practice. Mm -hmm. um, but if you don't mind, Let's talk about um, being the third of six children growing up in Brooklyn, New York, yeah. in what I understand, like a blue-collar mm -hmm. uh, income family. What was that like? Yeah. So I have uh, an older sister, an older brother, and then three younger sisters. So four sisters, one brother. Um, tight quarters. Uh, my, my dad was a laborer. He worked in a warehouse, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. So we always lived, eight of us, in a relatively small apartment with just a few bedrooms and one bathroom. So we kind of lived on top of each other for, for many years. Um, the way we're grouped, my older brother and sister are close in age, about a year apart, and then there's like three years, and then me. And then I have three younger sisters. So in my experience, the grouping was two, one, and three. So. Interestingly, in the family of eight, in tight quarters, I actually felt sort of alone and disconnected in some ways um, because of the way the grouping played out. So I kind of was on my own quite a bit from, from an early age. Mm. And <clears throat> I know doctors uh, talk about the middle child or being in the middle and that there's some you know aspects of that that affect our personalities. Yeah. Do you feel that? I don't know if there's any predictable uh, pattern to that, but I think it's I think the birth order is significant. I think it can be significant in different ways. So for me, it was kind of um, maybe maybe feeling a little lost in the middle. I don't think it always is that way for all families, but for me, I think it had a little bit of that feeling. So you um, grow up, you start to have, an, you, you take an interest in, in psychology. Where did that stem? Kind of by accident. Um, so in high school, it wasn't clear to me at all whether I'd, I would even go to college because nobody in my family went to college. My brother had uh, gone for about a year or so. But my parents didn't go to college. Really, nobody I knew had, had gone to college. Um, and I was uh, a decent student in, in high school, probably like an 85 average student. And I uh, was working in a grocery store at the time. And I remember my uh, the manager, or the, yeah, the manager of the store, who seemed like this powerful man, he was probably 26 years old. 
at the time. Uh, he said, uh, so would you like to, we need a produce, no, a frozen food manager. Would you like to be the frozen food manager full time? Because I was about ready, getting ready to graduate. And I said, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to do that. Um, I, I think I might have said, I'm, I'm thinking I might go to college. Um, he said, okay. And then I kind of chickened out on the whole college thing. I was really not sure how to do it. I um, got tripped up on the application materials. And actually, I remember the day. Um, it was the day that I was to go register for City College in, in New York. And I was trying to fill out some paperwork, and there was this word prerequisite. And I didn't know what the word meant. And I did not understand the word. And I got so freaked out, I said, that's it, I'm not going. I'm not going to college. And I told my parents, I'm not going. And they said, okay. And so I thought, all right, I'll just I'll go stay at the grocery store. And I went back to that assistant manager, and I said, so what about that produce manager job? He said, oh, no, no, go, go to college. It's a 26-year-old guy. It actually played a little bit of a part in my decision. Because if he had said, okay, sure, well, I, I might be <laughs> in the freezer right now um, packing frozen food. Um, so it made me puzzled, you know, what to do. And um, so I, I did have a high school teacher that I was friendly with and talked with him. He said, hey, yeah, go. Why don't you just try Brooklyn College? It's, you know, it's close. Just, just, try, just try it and see. So I thought, okay. So I, I tried. And he, and he, he kind of knew me. And he said, why don't you try psychology? I think you might be good in, with psychology. So I decided to give it a try. And he was right. I, I liked it. It was a good fit from the start. And so my interest built, uh, just continued to grow from there. What do you think he saw in you where he guided you in the direction of that? Um, I think he saw me as a deep thinker. Um, he was a history teacher, and I had had him for several semesters. So I'd written some essays or papers, and I think he, he thought that I was a careful thinker um, and in, insightful, I think. He, he would say things like that. So I, I think things like that he was picking up on. Mm. So interesting how those relationships can change the course of our lives. It's amazing how many times things like that have happened. These people make these innocuous, what they, what they think are innocuous statements, but can make huge, huge differences. Um, and another one very much like that was years later, interestingly, at a similar juncture when I was finishing college and applying to grad school, again, having a hard time, uh, procrastinating, getting uptight about it. And my oldest sister had a boyfriend, and her brother was about my age. And he was uh, going to Brooklyn College also. And he was a real confident go-getter kind of guy, very nice guy. Uh, but he didn't have any of the reticence that I had. And, I, and we must have had some family get-together, and he and I were taking a walk and talking. And I was telling him that I was having such a hard time getting these applications for grad schooling. And he just looked at me and said, just do it. And it kind of rocked me. But it actually 
made a bit of a difference. It actually helped me to do it. Now, I'm not saying that if he hadn't said that, I wouldn't have done it, but it, I remember it to this day. That was you know, many years ago. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, sometimes those little things and the people who do them probably have no clue. Right. No clue the impact. And this happens all the time in life, and it, and it could be positive or negative. Absolutely. So we have to be careful with our words. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, can you talk about a little bit more about the your educational history? Um, sounds kind of touch and go, and, yeah. and, and how you finished out yeah. and then entered into the professional world. Yeah. Yeah. So it was hard to know what kind of a student, uh, or what kind of potential I had. It was I got mixed messages along the way. So in in early years, I felt quite average. Um, I didn't think I was anything special. But in fifth grade, I must have taken some test. I don't even remember. Um, but I do remember the day the teacher announced that some kids were chosen for this special program. It was a three-year program where they would skip the eighth grade. So it was a, you go to sixth, seventh, and then ninth grade in middle school. This was still, this was the last year in grade school. And she was reading off the list. And she read my name. And I remember I had a pencil, and the pencil just fell to the floor. I just couldn't believe that I would be selected for that program. But I was, and so I went to the middle school, went to sixth grade, seventh grade, skipped eighth, and went to ninth grade. So that was a special honor, um, but I still didn't get, I never, I thought it was a mistake. I always thought it was a mistake. I still kind of think it was a mistake. Um, but I did it. Um, went through high school. You know, was uh, did okay, like an, again, like eighty-five ish. Mm -hmm. Started off trying to go to city college and took a placement exam for that and did well on the placement exam and was about to go until I froze and aborted it. Then maybe a semester later, took a placement exam for Brooklyn College, and I got in. But they said uh, your reading scores. There was some issue there, so you need to you need to start with a remedial reading class in Brooklyn College. So that was shocking. Like I didn't think that fit, but I took the class, and then did really well in Brooklyn College. Wound up graduating with a very high GPA. Um, so there was this back and forth feedback, this mixed feedback about myself, which so that was a struggle uh, over the years. Uh, then came time to apply to internship. I was lucky to get into some very good internships. Um, so it's a good example of the the journey to to see oneself, to understand oneself, and how others see us, and what's real and and, and what's not. Um, in graduate school, in the begin, the first year was really hard for me. Once again, like I don't, I don't belong here. I, I, I I'm not going to make it. A lot of self-doubt. A lot of self-doubt. A lot of self-doubt. Um, but perseverance. Perseverance, yeah. Yeah. yeah Did you have that voice inside helping you to keep going, not to give up? Yeah, that, you know, perseverance and stubbornness are just opposite sides of the same thing. So, yeah, I could be really stubborn. Um, I'm just going to. I'm just going to push through. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. 
even though at times I felt like I was going to quit or I thought for sure I was going to get kicked out. Um, but perseverance is, is what, what got me through. And so that was a, an important lesson. What do you think about some of those early tests you took for the remedial reading, for example? Did they have that right? They must have picked up on something. Uh, so I am thorough, thoughtful, pensive, careful, and that doesn't do well on timed tests. So I think that could be the issue that, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I can't skim, I can't read quickly, I can only because you want to really comprehend. Yeah, I can only yes. like microscopically mm -hmm. study I'm like what that. I read. Um, and so that doesn't do well on timed tests. So I, my guess is it, that's what it could have been. And again, for your work today, it makes sense, right? Yeah, right, right. So that there are advantages and disadvantages sure. like for most things. And the moral of the story, I guess, for youngsters maybe listening, if they're going through similar things, is, is to persevere, not give up. Listen to those who are speaking to you, yep, even yep. though it may not make sense. Yeah, yeah. Try to relax, try to put things in perspective, which is hard to do, especially for young people, especially yes. if they don't have a lot of guidance, so people helping them to do that. Right. So, Doctor, what does it mean to you to live well? Mm. We, we hear this all the time, live well. Yeah. What does that mean to you? So I, I think I probably started to think about that as a child. Um, looking around at my family, I didn't think it was the model system for how to run a household. So I was kind of critical of my parents and the family system then. Now I have a lot more perspective and they were doing a really good job with very six little kids. resources and six kids yeah. on little income. But I was wondering, you know, why are you doing it like that? And why can't we do it better? What about if we did this or did, or did that? Um, then in college, uh, I started to get a little more academic and philosophical uh, about it. Um, so I remember being introduced to people like Abraham Maslow and um, the climb to self-actualization. And that really appealed to me. Um, so words like that and words like uh, authentic being authentic appealed to me as a, as a freshman in college. Um, and at the same time, I got interested in, in psychoanalysis and Freud and um, identifying our obstacles, our anxieties, our neuroses, and trying to overcome them in order to be more authentic and self-actualized. Um, so in the early years, I think I was thinking a lot like that, um, still do. Um, so sometimes I think to live well is, is to find ourselves and to be ourselves, to be our best selves. Um, an analogy that I, I sometimes use is if I think of all the instruments in, a, in an orchestra, it works best when, when every instrument knows what it is and does what it is. So if a piccolo knows it's a piccolo and plays like a piccolo, that's good. If a piccolo thinks it should be a flute or is trying to be a flute, that's probably not so good. If, if a clarinet plays like a clarinet instead of trying to be a bassoon, that's going to that's gonna be a problem. So if everybody knows pretty much who they are and are doing their thing, I think that's one way to think of living well. 
It's a great analogy. Yeah, Never thanks. thought of it like that. Thanks. Um, then completely different perspective um, from a, a faith perspective you can think of uh, not so much of an ego thing living my best self but maybe living what God wants us to the way God wants us to live and what, what is God's role so that's a very different way to think about it they probably can go together um, but I think about that too, and, and, and try to uh, try to learn about that, and try to grow with that as well. So the the, the spiritual realm mm -hmm. of living well. Yeah, yeah. Um, living a life that's consistent with God's will. And that can mean different things to different people, Absolutely. depending on what religion you might be. Right. If, if at all. Right. Yeah. Um, but the will to do good, the will to serve others, mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so my mom was a strong Catholic. My dad was a Lutheran, not really practicing Lutheran, but he was a good husband and he followed my mom. He went to mass with my mom. Uh, every week, and he supported her in her faith, and so she he agreed to raise the kids Catholic. So we were raised Catholic, and I was um, pretty um, good about going to mass and, and so forth and, until around age 16. And I remember it, it stopped when I took driver's ed at 16 in Brooklyn. It was at this this Jewish facility that happened to have the classes, and they had the classes like Sunday at nine o'clock which is when we would go to Mass. So I said, okay, I'll just go there instead of Mass for these six or ten weeks, whatever. And when I did that, I, I felt, I realized, oh, I really don't like going to Mass. It's, I don't, it was, I think it was still Latin at the time, or maybe it was just making the switch from, from Latin. Um, and so I just stopped going. And started to think the whole thing was ridiculous and, and stupid and, um, I think I thought of myself as an atheist around that time for quite a while, for about 16 years, from 16 to around 30, 32, um, and until I met my wife, and then things changed, things changed. So uh, falling in love with my wife and rediscovering my faith happened at the same time, and they're kind of one and the same for me. Same uh, faith? Yeah, yeah, she's Catholic. also Catholic, you know. Um, so my journey there has been sort of an uh, up and down thing as well, but but pretty quite steady since then. And I guess that's a good <clears throat> example of our environment, right? I know I think one of your articles talked about your environment and how that could impact our lives. Right. So had you not met your wife, that may not have come back for you. Right, right. Yeah, she... Uh, just by being who she is, it, it, it well, changed me completely. Yeah. Mm. If you don't mind, I'd like to just touch, because it's a, a topical uh, item right now in the church. Um, you know, recently you read about um, what's happened in Pennsylvania. 
And I know, you know, overall, if you look at, at the priesthood, I think it represents 5% or less of the priests who have participated in some of this, mm -hmm. you know, very, very bad activity with yeah. youngsters. How, what do you think about that from a psychological standpoint on these, on these once children that are now adults um, and how that has affected their lives? <clears throat> The children who were victims, it's often devastating. Um, well, I want to. It's often devastating at the time, but I don't think it has to devastate one's life. I think people can recover and heal and grow and, and be okay. So I don't think it's a permanent um, end of life kind of thing, but it's devastating. It can be devastating at the time for sure. And it can have long term effects, you know. So it's. It's profound. In your work, do you, without obviously going into any confidentiality breach, uh, but do you deal with adults who have been victims similar to what we're seeing now uh, in, in the Catholic Church? Um, or just abused? Certainly, certainly victims of abuse, physical and sexual abuse. Yeah, a fair amount of that. Um, and yes, maybe some with 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 clergy. Um, I don't hear a lot about that. It's, I, it's probably one of the more difficult things to talk about. But um, so I hear a little bit about that, but not not too much. But certainly, sexual abuse is you know, way too way too common. How do you deal with that professionally? Um, Like with all things, I think first I want to try to figure out how is this impacting your life negatively today, if at all. There are some people who either because they are they're very resilient or they've had good good help along the way that they're coping okay, and it's not really interfering in their lives because they've done a pretty good job healing and coping and putting it in perspective and. Um, and moving on, but for others, it impacts their lives. So I want to figure out how is it, if it's, if you're stuck as a result, how are you stuck? Are you stuck in being able to trust others? Are you stuck in your sexual relationship with people? Are you stuck in your self-esteem and, and uh, blaming yourself, which is very common? Uh, the guilt, overcome by guilt, why didn't I do something about it? I can understand why I didn't do something when I was really young, but by the time I was 12, surely then I should have done something about it, they think. They don't understand yet, but it's way more complicated than that. So my approach is kind of a practical one. Okay, so this happened, and so how is it impacting your life now? And then let's see what we can do to adjust things so that it's less of a, of an, has less of an impact. Yeah, and I think I'm thinking about your recent article about living in the present. Mm. Does that play into your discussion with a, a, a patient in that oftentimes, you know, and I, 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 I do it all the time, you know, wait, dwelling on the past, for, for, you know, and I'm trying to get better at it. Yeah, yeah. Living in the present, is that, is that key to overcoming some of these 
yes challenges that people have faced yes so, so the the pres the past the present and the future are tricky things in in my therapy work um, so some people will say don't dwell on the past the past is the past it's over and done with come on let's just move on and forget the past I don't think that works um, on the other side, people will say, don't worry about the future. The future's not here yet. Tomorrow will take care of itself. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Too much of that is, is not so helpful either. And, you know, just focus on the moment. All we have is the moment. Just focus on the moment. I think that's a little, a little missing the point. All three are important. The past is the past. But for one thing, our feelings about the past are not the past. Our feelings about the past are present. So I may be upset right now about something that happened 35 years ago. So that's relevant. Um, so it doesn't go away. We don't need to make it go away. In fact, the, the, the challenge is more the opposite. It's to incorporate it. It's, it's like um, threads that are woven into a fabric. It's there into the fabric of our life. And it's okay we, if we can try to come to terms with it, that it's okay that it's part of the fabric. It has problems. But it is what it is, and you know we can learn valuable lessons from those bad things too. So it's accepting that it is that the past is part of the present, and that it even may have some impact into the future. We don't have to be afraid of that. We don't have to deny that or prevent that. But it's learning how to roll with all this, learning how to cope with it, so that we can enjoy the moment without being without dwelling in the past and being stuck in the past, without being so fretful about the future, although we recognize those, but we can choose to focus on the moment when we want to. So I, I see what you mean when you say it's, it's a little tricky. Yeah, yeah. As an individual, as you're talking about that, the first thing that comes to my mind is balance. You know, don't go one way right. or the other or right. stay right here. It's it just right. seems like you need to move, there needs to be some flow, but don't really get stuck anywhere. Right. Yeah, balance. And, and, and the balance doesn't have to be a perfect balance either. You know, sometimes you can shift more into the past. Sometimes it's useful, maybe in therapy, to spend quite a bit of time talking about the past, feeling about the past, reprocessing the past. Um, but overall, it's nice to have it be balanced so that we're not tipped too heavily in one direction or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned early on that one of the words you used was thoughtful, that you, you, you try to be thoughtful in your work, even going back as a youngster, which is great. Yeah. And I could see that in your, in your writings. Mm. They seem, it, it, the, the, the articles seem very thoughtful to me. Mm. Like you've really, do I have that right? Do you take your time, you plan it out? How are you when you when you come up with a topic? What happens? Are, do you do an outline? It's okay. I want to cover these points, so let's take this latest article. Uh, notice the present moment. Right. How did that come to life? Right. Um, that came by my interest in the word notice. So I really wanted it to be an article about the word notice and what does it mean to notice. And for me, that's a big part of mindfulness. Um, I, th I think it's a really cool and special word. Um, 
to see something and to experience something without judgment. So to notice without judgment, which is very difficult to do. We typically see things, we notice things, and then we categorize it as good or bad, a problem or, or not, something I can handle, something I can't handle, something I should worry about, or, or, or something I should take care of. Um, so mindfulness for me involves being able to notice things and to relax and, um, the temptation to judge the thing. So um, one of the things I like to do to relax is to sit on the deck and just, just look at the clouds. And it can take me a while to settle into the chair and get comfortable. I can't just do it. I fidget for a while and have to take some time to get into that space. But I can get there and it can be really nice. So I just notice the clouds. Now, inevitably, uh, the temperature starts to change. And if it's early in the morning and the sun is coming out, now I'm starting to get hot. I notice the sun is beating on me and I'm getting hot and uncomfortable. Or if it's later in the evening, I notice the sun's going down and I'm getting cool. Or I notice the mosquitoes are coming out and starting to annoy me. So my challenge is to notice these things without getting irritated about it. If I want to, I can do something about it. If I'm warm, I can put the awning out. If I'm cold, I can get a sweater. Um, but to try to notice them from a relaxed place of non-judgment. Um, so that's a challenge I've been working on for a long time. I talk about it a lot in my therapy. It seems to be a helpful idea for a lot of people. And is the word observation similar? Observing, noticing, observing, being yeah. aware? Is that all related? Yeah, uh, I, I, I think observing to me almost has a little bit of a... Judgment? Of an energy about it, like mm -hmm. studying, like to observe and study. Maybe not, but it, um, you know, it's basically the same thing. But that's why you gravitate toward notice, because there's less of that. Yes, yeah, and for me at least. Truly noticing. Yeah, just to notice, mm -hmm. and that's it. And, okay. And we can do that, you know, with little things like the sun going down or coming up. Or we can try to do that with big things, really big things. It's a lot harder, but, you know, I noticed that I lost my job today. I noticed that our basement is flooded. It's quite a challenge to not be reactive to that. But if we can try to, be, to not be so reactive and then feel what we feel and then take the steps we need to, um, it's less stressful than giving in to the, the reactivity. And I could see your point. If we practice these little things daily, these yeah. Noticing, you know, I'm here right now, having a nice conversation. Um, noticing this light is a little bright, but not distracting me enough. Right. When the big things do come up, to hopefully keep that same level of energy. It's the same strategy, yeah. Yeah. And for me, it, um, it comes down to, often comes down to a, a judgment as to whether this condition is tolerable or intolerable. 
and really, very often we judge things very quickly as intolerable. Oh, the sun's coming out, now I'm getting hot, I can't stand this. Oh, the sun's gone down, I'm getting cold, and the mosquitoes are coming out, uh, uh, this, this is awful. We, so we, we don't realize that we can probably tolerate those things. We don't, you don't necessarily have to do anything about those things. And that's true for a lot of things that we, we believe that we need to do something about a lot of things, and sometimes we don't. Now, is that human instinct, or is that our culture, what, or combination? Uh, good question. I don't know. I don't know about the human instinct. I'll have to think a little bit more about that. But our, definitely, our culture. I think destroys reactive. us in this way. Yeah, right. right. Every to be reactive. To every everything. commercial is telling us you should not have to tolerate any discomfort. We have a pill for anything you might feel. We have a car for you. We have perfume for you. We have anything you need to feel perfectly comfortable. You should not have to tolerate anything uncomfortable. And I think that is an awful message in this culture because, because people grow up believing that and so they don't know how to tolerate anything uncomfortable. We want to fix it. We want to get rid of it. So all of this conversation about noticing the present moment, how does that translate to an article? Um, Do you have it up here and you're just writing it? Or are you, I'm just trying to get to the mechanics yeah, of that. Yeah, so it's, so it's a word that I have been thinking about for a long time, talking about in, in therapy or talking about with my wife as we take our walks together. So I know that it matters to me and I have some a bit of passion about it. So um, now I have a list of ideas for articles it's probably 15 pages long. There's tons of ideas, but I almost never use them. When I sit down, I pick the, the topic when I sit down, and I try to find, okay, what's fresh and alive with me right now? Yeah, that noticing thing. I've been thinking about that noticing thing lately. So let's go with that. So I don't know. I don't make an outline. I don't know all that I want to say, but I, I say, let's just start. And, and I want to start with, what's, what's the main point that I want to get across? And I just um, start there, and then I kind of go in to some place, uh, and I, I need it to be really quiet and tune everything out, and just um, try to think about, what am, what am I trying to say? Why, why do I care about this? Why am I passionate about it? What am I trying to get across? And then let's just try to put it into words. Mm -hmm. And you give details and you give examples and so people could relate to the topic. But I like, back to the thoughtful point, mm. it just, the articles read very thoughtfully mm. that, you know, wow, I really learned something oh. out of this. So I thought that was really, and, and that's, so, so I'm a writer as well, so I was curious on how you put all that together because that in itself is a work of art. Right, putting putting an article together has to have some sequence. Yeah, yeah. So I just try to keep it real, talk about what I what I believe, and and not try to make it anything special or fancy, but just talk about what I'm thinking, what I what I think others might like to to think about. So right. I'm glad to hear that it yeah triggers thoughts. Absolutely. 
So there's a couple of other articles I'd like to talk about if we can. Sure. Uh, make mindful choices with television mm. and technology. Mm. I like that one. Yeah. Um, I've had a, a, a battle with cable TV for many years. So it was probably 20 years ago, I realized I'm watching too much TV. Um, I have so many things I want to do, creative things or things that I think are meaningful, but it's so easy to just watch TV. Um, I'm a music lover, and uh, so when MTV came out, I just love watching music videos. I'm, I could be addicted, I could watch them forever. Uh, so I would try to taper that and it wouldn't work. Um, so I decided I needed to cancel, um, reduce the channels. Back then, maybe it was 56 channels, which seemed like a lot. And so we reduced it back to the basic. We called up Time Warner and reduced it to the basic. Um, only to later learn out that what they call the basic is actually not the basic. That Their basic was maybe like 12 channels. Well, there was a three channel they didn't want you to they didn't there. even want us to know about that, <laughs> right. but we found out later. So I, you know, my, my wife and I agreed to do that. But then lo and behold, maybe you get a new TV or something, and lo and behold, 60 channels are back, free, for 30 days and then beyond. And I had to fight that several times to, to, to resist it. Um, let me get back to your question. Your question is about the, the mindfulness and the TV and, and the technology. The technology. So these things have a powerful draw. And the TV was nothing compared to what we have now. The, the, the cell phones. Um, and it's mindlessness. People are obviously not paying attention to what they're doing when, when we're on these screens. You know, we're zooming in, and that, you know that can be some value. I, I wrote another article, maybe that one about you know transporting ourselves. Like if you go to a movie, you want to be transported into another world. And that's and, okay, and that's wonderful. Sure, you read a great novel, and you're transported into a land you never imagined. That's great, but this is a way of life being transported into Instagram and, and Facebook and um, all that. I don't know how much value is coming out of that. It, it, it concerns me. Um, so I think it would be good if we made more mindful choices about that rather than having that be our routine, our default, and just living so many hours of our day in that world and not, and not having deep thoughts, not thinking about things deeply, not connecting with people particularly deeply. Yeah, and, and look, this is deep stuff because it's really affecting our society. I think about our, our kids, mm -hmm. um, how they're consumed. Yeah. Um, I think about my business. Yeah. And that, you know, I'm partaking in this. Um, I'm a producer of content. Yeah. I'm not a consumer. Mm -hmm. I, I, I look very little, mm -hmm. but I produce mm -hmm. constantly. Mm -hmm. But to me, now, as you talk about this, I'm saying, well, I'm, you know, I'm a built guilty in this in that um, now th what we're doing right now I feel is very purposeful we're putting out good content to the world but yeah, yeah. it's some of the other things you know uh, I, everything I try to do I try to keep it positive you know if people are going to stumble onto a post I want there to be something of value there for them 
I, so it's a, but it's a tough balance. Yeah, yeah. I know. I think there's the, the potential for the internet to teach and to introduce people to wonderful things is, is astronomical. So, yeah, there's a lot of great content that causes people to think and to learn and to grow. Um, so, yeah, I have no problem with that. But a lot of it is quite the opposite. Horrific stuff. Um, so it's that's why it's to be mindful to choose how much time we spend and what content we're using to try to get better at choosing rather than just doing it without thinking. I notice uh, you're not on social media, are you? No, and, and I never had a Facebook account um, or Instagram. No, I don't, I don't do that. Why? Um, I'll tell you why. Um, years ago, so I'm uh, a member of the New York State Psychological Association, um, as well as the American Psychological Association. But New York State Psychological Association, they call it NISPA, N-Y-S-P-A, many years ago had this thing called the listserv. It was new, right? So all the members could post things they were thinking about or questions they had, and they would get feedback and they would talk to each other, also the different psychologists across New York State. And I thought it was pretty cool. And so I was an active member of that, and I posted, and I responded to posts. And I noticed the decline, the quick decline of the kind of discourse that was happening. People started fighting, and it became very political, and, and political camps became very uh, clear and entrenched and bitter. And they had all these rules about you can't post this, you can't post that. And one person got kicked off the listserv because he kept posting political things. And I just saw inevitably any conversation would continue to decline. And these are psychologists who are supposed to be good communicators and respectful. Um, so that was one part. And the other part was I, I noticed that I was hooked. So this thing... They, they didn't have likes back then, but if I posted something, I'd be curious later, did anybody read my post? And, you know, did anybody respond to my post? So I would go back and check, and I started to not like that. Like, what's up with that? I didn't like that. So after several years of that, I, I just said, no, this I don't want to do this. I don't want to participate. So I signed off from that listserv, and it was after that that Facebook and all the other things came. And I just realized, no, it's pretty much the same thing for me. It's the same trap for me. So I just, uh, I'm just not interested. There are some valuable things, for sure. And I know people get a lot of good things out of it. Keep in touch with family and grandkids, and you can learn new recipes and all that. That's wonderful. But, but the, the cost for me is not worth it. Mm. What do you think about what it's doing to our children? The social media. Social media. Yes. I don't know. I worry about it. I don't know. I'm. Su I, I suppose it's a mixed bag. I'm sure there are some good things. Um, I feel like I'm getting old, and I have old-fashioned ideas. Um, the the whole the whole dating scene has changed so much that you know, I, I try to not to be too old-fashioned to roll with things as they come out, but 
I just don't know that people know how to meet each other anymore without the social dating apps. Um, that just seems to be the way people do it. And I'm sure sometimes that works out well. Uh, I see a lot of cases where it's not looking so good. Um, so I don't know. Maybe I'm just getting a little old. And <laughs> yeah, and I think communication in general, um, I see even in, with my own children, um, you know, it's all communication through text mm -hmm. or Snapchat or whatever platform they're using. And I'm one, I want to pick up the phone. And even I see it in the business world too. People do not like to talk on the phone anymore. Right, right. It, it, it's difficult for me. Yeah, yeah. As I'm sure it is for a lot of people. Yep. You know, maybe in our age range. Yeah. Um, I mean, texting certainly can be very efficient and helpful, um, but it can also help us to avoid the challenge of intimacy. And, and I think intimacy is a challenge. You know, I think we we're avoid we we have an approach avoidant relationship with intimacy. We we want it, but we're also afraid of it. And uh, the social media makes it way too easy to avoid it and to not learn the skills of navigating intimacy and dealing with the fears. When you say intimacy, <clears throat> what about? being intimate with ourselves, really understanding ourselves first. Is that something that comes out in your work quite a bit when, when, you, when you deal with your, with your patients? Absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, you know, I have favorite words. Uh, contemplative is another favorite word. I think it's I mean, I love to have contemplative moments. I love to sit on the deck and think, or just sit on the couch and look out the window and think. Um, sometimes about something in particular, sometimes not. Um, to think about myself, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I here? What's the plan? What's the point? I think those are important things to think about. Um, I don't think social media usually helps us with that. I think it makes it more difficult. Um, you know, I remember, not, it seems like not that long ago, uh, my wife and I were at an airport and we looked around and said, oh my gosh, look, like almost everyone is on a phone or a tablet. Yeah. It probably was quite a while ago, but it doesn't seem that long ago because I remember when that wasn't the case. Right. And People would read or talk or just people watch and be comfortable sitting by themselves. I, we, we don't, we seem like uncomfortable unless we have that thing in our hand. Yeah, and age doesn't discriminate anymore. No, no. We see it. It's covered, the, the globe is <laughs> practically covered. Another article you had, uh, psychological fitness how we could learn from our mistakes. Mm. I okay. like that one. Um, but does that one go back? Do you have a date on that one? I believe that was 2017. Oh, maybe. okay. Yeah. Um, it's a funny thing. When it, once I write an article, 
if you don't really go it's, it's kind of it's yeah, kind of gone same, almost same with this yeah but um i probably was talking about uh the challenge to take in the lessons from mistakes and, and not beat ourselves up for the mistakes that we make. Um, and actually learn from them, right? Absolutely, yes. absolutely. Um, so we have a, a perfectionistic thing where we try not to have mistakes. We, you know, we think it's better to not make mistakes, um, which of course means that we, don't, we have less opportunities to learn. Um, the attitude towards mistakes is important. So again, an attitude of acceptance and, and calm, to try to have a calm acceptance that yes, this is true, I'm, I made this mistake, and maybe it was a small mistake, a small mistake, not a big deal. Maybe it was actually a really big stake, mistake and a big deal. But okay, to not, to not judge myself, to not punish myself, if I affected other people to apologize, to, to, to own our responsibility. Um, I distinguish re responsibility from blame. So for me, responsibility is saying, yes, I did that. That was my mistake. Blame is more the toxic energy of I'm such a loser. I'm such a bad person. I don't know what's wrong with me. You know, I don't even know why you would want to be my friend or my spouse. So that's the toxic blame energy that we don't need. Um, so I think dealing with mistakes is separating those two. Taking the responsibility, learn the lesson, but not blaming and punishing. I like that. Um, and to that point, the next article that I found interesting was the art of apologizing. Mm. So I have uh, some simple skills that I call a toolbox, and someday I might actually put it together as a toolbox kind of thing. But one of the tools is apologizing, um, how to apologize. It's it's something that I think we don't do enough and we don't always know how to do it. And I don't think it's that complicated, but sometimes I, I try to break things down into the simple ingredients. Um, I, I think that helps sometimes. So yeah, so apologizing is um, owning that I did this, realizing that it had an impact on you um, understanding and listening to the impact that it had on you, expressing some empathy, I feel bad that it hurt you or affected you in this way. Um, again, not judging myself to be a bad person. Um, I think it's good to apologize specifically sometimes. It's okay to say, I'm sorry, that's always probably nice to hear, but I think it packs more of a punch to say, I'm sorry that I told you I would meet you for lunch at 12 o'clock and I came at 1245 and I forgot to call you. I think making it specific makes it more real. Uh -huh. and, and I realize the discomfort that that put you in. 
and that may help the individual as well as the person that you affected. Yeah. Again, better communication going through, not just saying I'm sorry. Right, right. It's, uh, it's more exact and, and um, hitting the nail on the head. I like that. Um, I think it's good to stay away from I'm sorry you feel that way. I don't think that's really an apology. Yeah, it goes the other way. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's important to make an apology <clears throat> such that the goal is to make the apology. The goal is not to get the person to respond with forgiveness or, or, or anything. And that we get tripped up with that a lot. I said I was sorry. Why won't you forgive me? How, how can you still be mad at me? Why are you still mad at me? I said I was sorry. So we're expecting that if we apologize, the other person should then respond the way we want them to. And that's up to them. So if we apologize, we're, it's a gift. I was just going to say, right? that, isn't that the same as when you give someone a gift? You yeah. shouldn't expect a thank yeah, you. Yeah, right. right. You're doing it to, for the gesture of the gift. Right, right. I, or even, uh, you know, we have the phrase, I owe you an apology. And I, I think that's um, interesting. It's yours. I have this. I have this apology within me. And it has your name on it. It's yours. So I'm just giving it to you. You deserve this. And you're saying that's okay? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If I feel like I owe someone an apology, I'm not crazy about me telling somebody else, you owe me an apology. Right. That, I think, gets into a... Right. A different dynamic but if I am reflecting and say you know I owe this person an apology so I'm going to give it to him or her and then what what he should does with it is up, up to him or her now what about the person that is apologetic all the time that's probably it's a pattern yeah daily. it's probably not what I would consider really apologizing it's probably more wanting to be forgiven and to be let off the hook. It, or it could be that. Maybe it's a couple of things. It could be that, you know, please, please forgive me. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Please don't be mad at me. I can't stand it when people are mad at me. Um, it could be that. Or it could be a reflection of, of a self-esteem problem that I, yeah, I know I'm sorry. I'm such a blank person. I always screw up. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, or it could, it could be a way of keeping people from being angry or... Um, kind of preemptive. Yeah, preemptive, exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, not, not being, being afraid to handle the heat if, someone, if we did upset someone. Yeah, and I also think about the person who's maybe constantly late or never follows through, and they may always apologize in advance of <laughs> the situation. Yeah. Apologize, I was, you know, late, or apologize, I'm late again. Yeah. Apologize, I didn't call you. Yeah. So what might be more meaningful if, if, is if that person said, I really want to apologize. I, I have a tendency to be late, and I've been late with you a number of times. And I just want you to know that I really do feel bad about it. 
even if even if it's a problem that I can't seem to fix, it really does matter to me. So I really am I'm sorry that I have this ongoing problem that affects you. So if it's more sincere, I think that can feel better than just the, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Right. The last one I had, mm -hmm. last article, was uh, patience, the art of waiting calmly. Mm -hmm. So a number of the things we're talking about involve what I think of as the basic self-calming skills to to learn how to calm ourselves. Um, which I always think of as three pieces. I think of learning how to breathe slowly, learning how to relax our muscles, and learning how to think clearly and reasonably and compassionately. And I can talk a lot about all of those pieces, but those that's my three-pronged approach to self-calming. Slow breathing, relaxed muscles, thinking that's um, reasonable and, and compassionate. So when we're feeling impatient, we're probably not doing that. We're um, probably breathing a little quicker um, and physiologically we're tense and our heart may be racing and we're squeezing somewhere very likely. So our breathing and our muscles are, are, are doing that. And, and particularly our thinking is probably not helping us. We're probably thinking, in a sense, uh, inaccurately, judging the thing to be way more important than it is. Judging it to be urgent. I need to get home to make this phone call right away. Very often, those things that we think we need, are, I would say, are probably preferences. The things that I would put into the need category are, are very few. Um, but we think that we need things, or have to have things, or have to do things now, 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 uh, way more than, than I think that we really, really do. Um, so putting it in perspective, is, you know, how important is this really? Well, it's a, it's a preference of mine. I really would like to do this now or have this now. Um, but again, can I tolerate the discomfort of not having it? Probably. I can probably tolerate it more than I, than I think. <clears throat> so it's partly physiological, partly cognitive in how we perceive it, um, and then working with our emotional state. And how does, I'm just thinking about different personalities, how does someone who's, you know, we're having a pretty calm conversation right now. I've had guests that are very hyper, and it, you know, and that's just their personality. How can they get to that state, or, or do they? Is that just the way they, they're just up a notch in their <clears throat> charisma? I suppose people have different physiologies. I suppose people have, I mean, obviously people have different genes, different biologies. They may have different chemical things going on. So I think there's, we're different physiologically. So some people might be more um, prone to be energized and intense. But I think they could definitely learn to dial it back if they wanted to, if there was a reason to. I think even a person like that can learn to meditate 
can learn to sit calmly may, may be uh, more challenging. Um, so he or she's not going to change their genetic structure or their, their, their chemical system. Um, but they can learn habits to slow their breathing and relax their muscles and to think reasonably and compassionately without judgment. And I guess that's my question is someone who is at a higher intensity level, are they able to breathe calmly at that level or not? I mean, my gut reaction is, no, how, how could you? How could you breathe calmly if you're always hyper and talking loud and moving and this and that? Mm -hmm. But can, can, can they figure that out where they're at their own calm? Yeah, it gets kind of nuanced. I think it's probably possible for some people to be intense but inwardly calm at the same time. The analogy that comes to mind is... Um, Years ago, I, for whatever reason, I used to watch a lot of boxing. I was interested in watching boxing. And I would hear the phrase of boxers relaxing in the ring. And I thought, now that's an interesting idea. You're in a ring and someone is punching your face and your stomach and trying to knock you out and you're trying to relax? But actually, yes. And it's, it's probably true for all sports or for military, military for, for maybe for mm -hmm. any intense endeavor to have an, inward, an inner relaxation, even though we're doing intense things. So I think it is possible. I think that's a real tricky, maybe even more like a peak experience kind of thing. So I think it's possible. But probably more likely for the average person who's being intense like that, they're probably kind of charged. And, right. Yeah. Yeah. But if you maybe you meet a real extraordinary person who's up there in intensity but inwardly calm, right? that would be cool. Yeah, I think about the pitcher in Game Seven that bases are loaded and two outs. They need one more strike. Yeah. You know, how do you stay calm in that moment? Yeah. Where you're not going to throw a wild pitch. Right. Or if you're on the foul line. And you need to make this shot or the team's going to lose. Right, right. So the thinking, if they're thinking, oh, my gosh, it's all on my shoulders. If I don't make this free throw, it, the game's over and I will have lost the game and the championship. If that's what they're thinking, that's not going to help. And that's what we hear. You could psych yourself out. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is great. I, this is a great conversation. Uh, I have a few more questions, if you don't mind. Um, why do we do what we do? Mm. Work so we could rest or rest so we could work? Yeah. I know that's something you'd like to talk about. Yeah, that's a question that I, I came to several years ago, just exploring myself, um, noticing that I was you know, working hard during the week, which I like to do, and then looking forward to the weekends and trying to enjoy weekends and maybe catch up on a little, little bit of sleep and have some rest and some fun. Um, and then repeating over and over and over. And I started to wonder which, which is feeding which? Am I working really hard so that I can relax and enjoy the weekend? Or am I relaxing on the weekends in order to get ready for work? And it just became kind of stumped me. I don't know which it is. 
Now, maybe it's not either. It's probably both. Um, but it raises the, the larger question for me of what, why are we doing whatever we're doing? What is the point of any of it? Why do, why do we go to college? Why do we get a job? Why do we want a raise? Why do we want a partner or a spouse or a family? What is, what is the point of it? And is there, is there a way to define it um, for, for each of us? Is there ever a place where we say, yes, okay, I've done it all. I've gotten, I've achieved all the things. Um, then if we do, then what? Then what comes after that? Um, so these, these are the kinds of things I like to think about and uh, I like to talk about, see what other people think. But, but I think too often we're, we don't, we're not sure why we're doing what we're doing. When we're working really hard for something, why? I don't know if we think often enough why we're even doing it. And is it a, if we figured it out, would it be, would we say, yeah, that's a good reason for me to do that? Or would I say, that doesn't even make sense. It doesn't even fit with my values. I'm working really hard to do something that doesn't even fit with my values. I'm working really hard to, to earn more money, but I really don't believe that that's what brings happiness. I, I, feel strongly about that, but yet I'm doing that. So why am I doing that? My wife's family lives in Italy, so we've had a chance to visit them several times over the years, and boy, do they have a different lifestyle. Oh, I bet. They don't earn a lot of money, but they just seem happy. And not, I mean, not happy-go-lucky, but yeah. they yeah. just seem calm. Mm. And they're not shy if they can't afford something. Yeah. You know, it's not a bad thing. Yeah. They have the basics. You know, they have a small little car, pretty small living quarters. They like their, you know, gardens and family. It's pretty different from the American way. It yeah. is. There's a lot to learn from that. Yeah. Yeah. What about... <clears throat> someone like me so a year ago we started this series this show mm -hmm. and it changed my life I stopped watching television pretty much stopped doing anything extracurricular Wow um, but I'm not in a bad place I, I, I don't look at weekends anymore as oh I can't wait for the weekend mm -hmm. um, every day just seems to be similar good like in, mm -hmm. a, in a good place mm -hmm. is that okay to constantly living at that high intense level of and I don't even consider it work necessarily so I'm just I'm my slots are filled my time is filled I know I know I have to do this this and this and I and my family's a big part of that so I tried to cover the gamut mm -hmm. and yes there's little bit of downtown time. Mm -hmm. A few years ago, my niece, Katie, sent me an article. She was in college at the time, I think, called Buddhist Economics. And I think it might be a classic from maybe the 60s or something. Um, and it talks about view of work, the Western view of work versus the Buddhist view of work. And the Western view is the least work that I can do to get 
the most money and stuff, the better. The Buddhist view, as I understood it, is very different, that the work has inherent intrinsic value. So it's good to love the work that we're doing, regardless of you know, the money and, and the fame and, and all that. So I would say if you're loving what you do and it's helping you to be your piccolo or bassoon, whatever, that sounds great to me. Um, if you're loving it and it's being your true self, yeah. Now, do we have to keep an eye on it so that we're not neglecting family and, you know, yeah, we always have to keep an eye on that. Good, I feel validated. <laughs> um, no, that's, that's great because, uh, you know, everyone's at a different place in their life and I don't know if I will continue with this five years, 10 years, that may be my lifestyle, I don't know, but I do know that I'm happy because what I'm trying to do is put good content, as we talked about earlier, out to the world. I want people to benefit from these conversations. Right, right. so that's why you do it. Right. That's, that sounds good to me. Great. So let's talk about ambition. Uh, power, wealth, yeah. notoriety versus uh, appreciation. Right. Relationships. Art, yeah, so it's kind of, you know, sort of what we were just talking about. Um, the word ambition I've thought about, is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Um, it's used both ways, I think. You know, he, he's a great guy. He's so ambitious. He, Elon Musk sounds like a pretty ambitious guy. I mean, he wants to colonize Mars. That's... That's pretty ambitious. Um, I don't know. I'm not judging that as a good thing or bad thing, but it's easy to get caught up in trying to achieve and accomplish and acquire and to be really ambitious about all that. I think that I think there's a healthy version of that and maybe a not so healthy version of that. Um, if we think that we're gonna find happiness or nirvana or contentment as a result of that. I don't know. I don't think so myself. I don't think that that's what gets us there. Um, so there's a paradox. I think I'd like people who work hard, who have dreams and passions and pursue them really fiercely but not necessarily with the ambition that so that I can be wealthy or powerful or famous or successful and then somehow then live the life I want to live. That seems like kind of a mistake. Um, so I think the goal is to try to appreciate the journey, appreciate the moment, appreciate what we have, appreciate the hard work that we're doing to, to be able to enjoy it as we're going through it um, and not be looking for the, the greener grass on the other side of some definition of success. Yeah, I think of gratitude and appreciation. Yeah. So important. Yeah. We're having our one year anniversary party tonight and as I was thinking about it all week, 
the one word that kept coming to mind is appreciation mm. and gratitude. Like, could not do this without the guests, without Michael, yeah, without all the people that have supported yeah. the endeavor. Yeah. Not just me, the whole endeavor. Mm -hmm. So, as I get older, that's something I'm very conscious of is, is gratitude and appreciation because yep. a lot of times we just take things for granted Absolutely. And, and we don't take the time to thank people. So yep. Yep. it's really important to me. Yep. To, to realize that um, <clears throat> these things are gifts and that we didn't have to get them and we could lose them any moment. So they're here now. So enjoy them now. Thank people for them now, as best we can. Yes. How about confronting our time and our own mortality? Yeah, yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah. Um, so quite a few years ago, maybe 20-something years ago, I saw in a catalog, um, sharper image maybe, those catalogs. I love those. This, this gadget. Um, I don't know what it was called, but it basically was a, a backwards clock. It was a clock that you would set, you would figure out, you would start with your age and figure out your average life expectancy, and then determine how many, how much time you should have left based upon that. And you put that into the clock, and the clock ticks backwards telling you how much time is is left. Scary thought. And I thought that was an awesome, scary thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I came close to buying that clock because I I, I like the, the power of facing that we are mortal and we have a limited Time. We don't know exactly. We can take a guess based upon uh, you know, average life expectancy. But it's so easy to just be in complete denial of that. Um, so I don't spend all day thinking about that, but I probably think about it every day. Um, I remember at one point I, I looked around at the books in my house and I just did a very quick calculation. How many books have I read in the past year and how many books can I see right now? And at the rate that I was reading, there is no way I would ever read all the books I have right now. And I'm still buying books. So what do you do with that? So what I try to do with that is to make some adjustments and to so maybe what I do with that is I cancel my cable TV or mm -hmm. whatever is drawing me that I don't think is um, a good use of my time. And maybe I try to read a little bit more. Um, these kind of, when I talk like this to my wife, she gets a little like, oh, come on, don't, don't think too much about that. But she gets it, but, mm -hmm. um, or vacations, you know, so how many vacations am I going to have left? I would like to think, oh, 
we have we can go on all these vacations we can go here there 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 well actually I can count how many vacations we're probably going to have right which means we should probably think a little more carefully about which vacations we want to take and when and um, not live as if we're immortal so it's not to be morbid, but I think it's to, to be real and to choose how we live with more intention. Right. Every day. Every day. Because the vacations become the choices of our daily lives in, you know, is this the right choice today? Yeah. It's consistent with my overall plan. Talked about the backward clock. Um, there, I, did, I have an app on my phone for that so you put you in do. yes wow. you put in um you know your expected age i think i put 80 mm -hmm. or 82 something like mm -hmm. that wow and it, and i don't go on there often but uh -huh. every so often i'll open it up to say hmm, it's it's ticking it's constantly ticking it's a nice reminder yeah i think it takes courage to do that to look at that yeah um i think i erased it one time and then i brought it back <laughs> A little ambivalence, I, I can understand that. <laughs> what about free will and choice? Um, I think even for mental health, it's something I find myself talking a lot more about in, in therapy sessions than, than I used to. And I don't know if I got... It's funny, the things I talk about in therapy are, so many of them are things that we never talked about in my training in grad school, but they're the real life things. Um, so people get tripped up mental health wise because they believe what I, they have the, what I call the I can't, I have to syndrome. I can't meet you for lunch, I have to get an oil change. Sorry, um, I can't. I can't meet you at seven thirty in the morning. I'm not a morning person. I need to sleep until later, and on and on and on. Things and these are beliefs, things that we believe to be true. I can't do that. I have to do this, and I think that they're many, many times false. It's not that we can't and that we have to. It's that I don't like to yeah. get up early. I like to sleep in. I, I like to be a night person, or it suits me better to be a night person than a morning person. So what's missing is the realization that we have the free will to choose to do things, even if they're uncomfortable, even if they're not consistent with our most comfortable style we can choose to do these things anyway sometimes they're hard um, but we don't think enough about the, the choices that we have in my opinion um, it's too easy to think I, I can't and i have to so I, I i'm smiling because i have a little joke with my with my father so they know our lifestyle and we're busy and the kids and you know there's all kinds of things going on all the time so 
they'll call and say, do you want to come for dinner? It's always last minute, right? So, and then he'll answer me before I can answer. And he'll say, no, you can't. You can't. You have to do this. Right. You can't. You have to do that. Right. So it's so true. Right. That, right. But what he's doing is he's repeating what I typically say. Dad, I can't. I, I, I have to take the kids to right. the game. Right. Right. But I've been more aware of that lately, saying, you know what? They're getting older. Our kids are getting older. This is a special time. So, yeah, maybe we do less of this and more of spending time with them. Right. So that's that's one way. Um, another alt, uh, alteration is to say, it's not that I can't. I could. It's not that I have to do such and such with the kids. I don't really have to. But I really prefer... To do such and such with the kids so I'm gonna say no to dinner tonight but it's not because I can't it's it's a choice I like that I'm, I'm exercising my choice but maybe next time I'll do it the other way around I'm mm -hmm. gonna say no to my kids I'm gonna to choose to say no to my kids and choose to say yes to you and again talking about how words matter just yeah. presenting it that way will make the other person feel a little bit better yeah. I think so. a direct you know insult to them yeah and I think it's more honest mm -hmm. you know it's more honesty. That's it's more real. Yeah, authentic. That's a big topic as well. Um, mm -hmm. How many times in a day, you know, you hear people talk about this, the white lies. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and again, these are things that I don't know if it's just because I'm getting older, but I'm, now I'm starting to be aware. Like, okay, I'm going to go an entire <clears throat> day without doing a white lie mm -hmm. it's hard yeah I mean, yeah even to yourself or to, absolutely I mean but once you're conscious of it <clears throat> I think it helps you communicate better and it helps when you're honest with yourself when you're honest with others there's no reason sometimes we just it seems say a white lie to say it because you don't want to tell the truth because right. you feel you might hurt someone right right and you're right lots of times it's to ourselves even um, and that, you know and therapy you talk a lot about emotional honesty being honest with ourselves and others but first with ourselves about what we really feel and what we don't feel and so often we deny what we feel no I'm not angry I'm just just frustrated or just disappointed or I'm no I'm not afraid I'm just uh, you know I'm just waiting right and, and we're not honest with what we feel uh, sometimes so let's talk about one of my favorite topics, and I believe it's yours as well, and that's mindfulness. Mm -hmm. um, you talked a lot about non-judgment mm -hmm. and the importance of that. Mm -hmm. And again, that's another one of those daily practices. It's, it's really hard. You know, uh, I listen to Deepak Chopra quite a bit, and he mm -hmm. talks about non-judgment. You know, today, practice non-judgment. You know, just try to do it for today. Mm -hmm. And again, it's... Yeah. yeah. And then we can tend to judge ourselves because we're having a hard time being non-judgmental. So there you have layers of judgment. Um, so yeah, for me, I think trying to notice and accept things as they are without judging them. Um, I've learned some things about Buddhism from clients that I've worked with who, who have studied it very deeply and have taught me quite a bit. So the, the, the idea that all things are impermanent, 
I learned from my work with some people. Um, so that's part of mindfulness, to, to understand that everything is just temporary. Everything is, is you know, going to pass. All the things, all the people, all the moods, all the experiences. And um, to try to not get attached to, the, to them as a result. To experience them, notice them without judging them in the moment as much as we can, without getting attached and needing them to be different. I need this pain to go away, or I need this, this success to come quicker. I also think of mindfulness as um, knowing what we're doing. Uh, I think it's good to ask ourselves often, okay, what am I doing right now? And the, sometimes we might be surprised. Um, so if I'm taking a shower, and I ask myself, what am I doing? Well, this, the obvious answer might be I'm taking a shower. Well, kind of, but maybe what I'm really doing is I'm worrying about uh, going to work on Monday. That's really what I'm doing. I happen to be in the shower, but really what I'm doing is worrying. Or really what I'm doing is um, stewing about an argument I had with somebody. I'm repeating it, rehashing it and um, fueling my resentment. Maybe that's what I'm really doing. So to ask ourselves, what am I doing really, I think is an important question. And then we have the free will to choose, do I want to stay on that channel or do I want to change the channel? So maybe I can say, you know what, I don't want to worry about work on Monday or stew about the argument I had. I want to take a shower. So let's Feel the water and the, and the warmth, and let's relax and enjoy the gift of the shower. So to me, that's a good example of mindfulness. Yeah, because so often we do these things all day long, and we're not, again, in that moment, that present moment. Right, right. And, you know, texting and driving. What am I, am I, am I driving or am I having an argument or planning a date on the phone? Well, both are occurring, but where is your experience really? Where is your head really? And the problem is <laughs> too often it's really not on the driving. We, we all know that too well. Yeah. So doctor, can we talk about um, taking psychology outside of the therapy room? Um, doing talks, uh, your articles, um, the internet, you know, using these tools. Is this something that um, you're doing more of? Yeah, there's a, been a progression over the past 25 years or so. Um, so around then, uh, I, I love the therapy that I do. It's um, perfect fit for me. But I realized that there's, it's so contained, it's so limited in terms of how many people I can talk to. I only have so many hours in a week, and, and that's it. Um, so years ago, I, I was thinking of ways that I could reach more people, just have conversations with, with more people. Um, so, so that, in conjunction with my wanting to work on my public speaking, I decided, well, let's put the two together and let's do some public speaking. 
so I went to Toastmasters for a short time, then something happened, I had to stop that, but um, I decided to start these talks at the group practice I was working in. They called it the speaker question answer series. I didn't want to lecture. I didn't want to have to prepare a meaningful talk, but I just wanted to talk about the things, the kind, kind of the things we talk about in therapy. I just wanted to talk about it in a larger group. And so I would find spaces like free spaces uh, in the library or maybe I'd rent a space for an expensive uh, a few bucks and put, it, put um, notices in the paper having a talk and I would name the topic. I would pick the topic. Maybe it would be mindfulness or something. And then people would come and I'd say, okay, so what do you want to talk about? Because I, I like to respond to other people's energy. So I would put the try to put the ball in their part uh, in their in their hands um, okay so the topic is mindfulness what do you want to talk about and they would sit there like oh, no we thought you were gonna so I I worked it out I did some of both I sometimes I just said no you, you do it and or sometimes I took over but anyway so I did for many years I did talks like that and sometimes that led to other paid talks in the community for certain different businesses so that was fine um, but then one day I had the idea since I had some connection with one of the editors of the paper because I would send my little free notices there art friends giving the talk on this in the library um, I said you know would, would it be possible to write an article kind of like this and she said oh, sure send me something and we'll see and she took a look and she said I like it and, um, let's do it and so started putting the articles in the paper that was in 94 I believe so that that was that was fun so I've been doing that once a month uh, ever since but so still I feel a little bit of an itch you know to you know to reach out more or different ways a couple of years ago another niece of mine uh, was playing around with podcasts she wanted to do a podcast with her friend and she bought a little piece of equipment or something and she was over for dinner and talking about it and I said oh that sounds really cool and, and you know I could I could be a guest or I could be a host or got excited about it and it's just one of the things that didn't materialize for her didn't happen um, but I got kind of a little interested um, so I think about podcasts and YouTube channels sort of like what you're doing um, my wife is um, not only a big reader but she loves podcasts and she she walks a lot and she listens to, to podcasts so she introduces me to different podcasts and, and ideas um, so I have a lot of ideas, a lot of creative ideas of things that I could do. This is like one of them. So maybe, maybe not. But sometimes I think it could be cool if something spins off in that direction. Yeah, and it's a great way to reach a worldwide audience. Yeah. You know, you're not um, so local anymore where, again, just having a conversation right. as we're doing now. Right. Um, so I hope you do it. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be watching for that. Yeah. How can uh, diet affect our minds? How can diet affect our minds? That's a, that's a new one uh, for me. Um, so where did that come from? 
You're just curious? I was just thinking about it. You know, yeah. I, I think about, again, I, you know, we always relate to ourselves. So I think about, okay, when I eat unhealthy, I'm not as happy, I'm more tired, I can't, I'm not as sharp. So I'm, you know, I'm think, preparing for our interviews, thinking, okay, has doctor had any experience with this with his patients and potentially, you know, diet being a part of healthy mindfulness? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm sure it affects us physiologically. I'm not a physician or a dietitian, so I can't speak to the, the details of that. But of course, it does things to our metabolism and our blood level and, and all that. But certainly, it affects us psych psychologically. So, yeah, when we eat poorly, we psychologically, we typically feel bad, we feel guilty. It doesn't help us, doesn't lift our self-esteem. Um, so it increases our guilt, our shame, um, sense of inadequacy. If it affects our body, our weight or our body image, that, that doesn't help us moving about in the world. And when we do eat healthy, um, obviously the opposite. So, uh, I mean, I love eating clean food, this food that feels clean. Then I just feel like I, I ate a nice meal. Um, don't have nothing to feel guilty about. I feel maybe a little proud that I made a good choice. So it's just good for the self-esteem. Um, helps me to be less irritable and more generous and kinder to my wife and uh, others that I interact with. So I think it's I think it plays a big part. How about overcoming things like sugar? Mm -hmm. it's such a for me anyway. It's a it's an addiction. Yep, yep me too. For a lot of people, and I, I, you know, again, I'm more conscious of it today. But it's really difficult. Yeah, yeah. So how do we? So is it just the general person listening to this who may not think about this, but it, it, it could affect their life? Yeah. Um, are there any tips on how we could help ourselves train our mind to not eat that Snickers bar? Yeah. There's a lot to that. Um, so first of all, I, I think diets are unfortunate and um, not usually not the way. I think lifestyle change is, is the way. And lifestyle change has a lot to do with how we think about things and then choices we make. Um, so people are, are different. Some people can just like alcohol some people can cut back and drink less some people can cut back their sugar um, I love hot cereal I put some maple syrup in my hot cereal at one point I looked at it and started to think you know I think that's that's quite a bit of sugar there let me cut it back so I cut back that worked so now I have a new habit, I put about half that I used to. Ice cream is a different story for me. If I have ice cream in the house, it is extremely difficult for me with you. <laughs> to 
to not consume it quickly. So I go out for ice cream once in a while. My wife and I love to get ice cream once in a while. Um, but I had to, I make a policy. I think po policies for oneself are really important. So I make a policy to not have ice cream in the house. And, so, and I rarely violate that. Maybe if I have a dinner party, maybe I'll have ice cream, there's a little left over, and I'm going to knock it off within a day. But I don't keep it in the house. It's not, it doesn't work for me to do that. So I had to make a hard line policy for myself. So we need to know ourselves which things I can sort of negotiate with and cut back on and which things it's just not going to work. So I need to be firm about it. So there too, the I can't, I have to. Some people can, you know, well, I can't go without my ice cream. I can't go without dessert. Well, if you think that, you're, you're doomed. You can. Can it be very uncomfortable? Yes. Um, so I think some hardline policies are important. Um, and sometimes it's little things like you go out to dinner, you're done with dinner, would you like to see the dinner menu? I'm sorry, the dessert menu. It's an important decision. You might say, I'm not going to have any dessert, but I'll, yeah, I'll just take a look. Well, that's a little risky, you know, unless you're really good at looking at the dessert menu and not ordering. Sometimes it's better just to say no, right? It, but it depends on knowing yourself and, and what your risk level is. Well, this has been an incredible conversation. I can't wait to share this episode. I cool. think a lot of people will benefit from it. Um, but I was curious if, if you could take out your cell phone right now and call the 20-year-old Art. Hmm. What would you say to him? Well, 20 years old. Okay, where was I at 20 years old? I was Probably in, at that grocery store, maybe. I was in college, right. 20... I was in college. I was working at the grocery store, and I was also working at a men's clothing store in Manhattan. So I was busy, um, not that socially connected. Um, what would I say? I'd say uh, trust yourself. Keep at it. It's, it's going to get better. Um, have faith. Yeah, I think that's about it. And Dr. Friends, one last question that I ask every guest because I'm curious on what people think about this. And that is, what do you want your legacy to be? Mm. Mm. Probably pretty simple. Um, he was a good man. Uh, he loved his wife. And he tried to help people. Wonderful. Thank you so much. We appreciate you coming on. You're now part of the American Real family. Yay. And <laughs> I met a new friend. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much.
Thank you for tuning into American Real. Be sure to visit our website, AmericanReal.tv, or search for us on iTunes or YouTube for past episodes. While you're there, please rate us or leave us a review. You can also connect with me directly on Instagram or Facebook or by emailing roger at AmericanReal.tv. Now, if you're wanting to find your voice and share your story, join our live tribe and experience our 21-day live video challenge where the first cycle is absolutely free. Go to AmericanReal.tv forward slash live dash tribe to register. Thanks, and we'll see you on the next show.